I want to encourage you, today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and as we're there, uh, it's going to be a uh, content-heavy message uh, because there's just a lot to get through in this chapter as Paul talks about principles uh, for glorifying God and the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And if you're not a note-taker, I want to encourage you to become a note-taker when it comes to the Word of God. And uh, this is just a good way for you to remain tuned in and listen. You know that we put a basic outline on the screens uh, as we go through the message, and so it gives you the main points as we go through, and this is a good way for you to not only uh, pay attention as we're moving through a message, but to keep track of where we're at in the flow, and also to be able to refer back as God may want to speak to you through his word later on. If you don't uh, typically bring a notebook with you, there is a way that you can do this through our Church Center app. If you've got the Church Center app that we use to check in kids or to register for events, you can open that, and if you log in and you go down to the More tab on the bottom, there's a little button there that says Sermon Notes, and there are some interactive notes that you can use on your tablet or your phone, fill in the blank that has been provided so that you can follow along, and we're going to give that a try. But I recommend that you take notes, not because um, I might say something profound, but because God's Word is profound and because it teaches us how to live, and this is a good way for you to remember what His Word teaches to us. Two weeks ago, we considered 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which addresses issues of sexual immorality, and the chapter concludes with this really uh, profound and compelling summary. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says this, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. If you've believed in Jesus as your Savior and been born again, then you've been redeemed from the sin and the rebellion of your past, and this means that you should Use your body in order to glorify God. Your body is how you relate to God's world and the other people that he has created. And as a result, it is a major factor in your relationship with God. And your body is a major factor in what it means to be a Christian. This doesn't mean that your spirituality is totally dependent on your body, but it does mean that you are not independent of your body either. That spirituality is not something separate from your body. Everything you do is affected by your body, and your spirituality is not in a different category from your body. What you do with your body matters to God, and it affects your relationship with him. And that fact brings up a lot of interesting and puzzling questions for Christians. And when it comes to some matters, they're very cut and dry. What ought we to do in certain circumstances? Paul addressed some of those in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Should a Christian join his body to a prostitute? No. Why? Because your body is a limb or organ of Christ. You become a member of Christ. Should a Christian use her body to commit adultery or speak crassly or get drunk? No. Why? Because her body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. These are obvious ones. These are cut and dry. They are things about which it's black and white. But what about matters that are less obvious? Are there always a right and wrong option? And are there principles that can help us to make sense of questions for which there might not be black and white answers? For instance, is it good for Christian people who are married to abstain from sex sometimes? Does that make them more spiritual? 
If you're not married, should you be looking to get married or should you remain single? What about widows? Should they seek to be remarried? And what if you're already married but think that you could serve the Lord better if you weren't? Should you separate and act like you're not married? Should you get a divorce? Does it make a difference if your husband or wife isn't even a believer? Does that make you unholy? And what if you already got a divorce? Would it glorify God to remain single or would it glorify God to get married again? The answers to these questions may not seem as obvious as, should I visit a prostitute? And they may not be immediately clear. How do you glorify God in your body in these relational situations? And these are some of the issues that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But the passage shouldn't just be seen as a list of random commands for romantic relationships. That's not the title of the message, random commands for romantic relationships. That's not what we're talking about. It does give commands, it does give counsel for relational questions, but that counsel is founded on some principles for glorifying God throughout your life. So rather than just addressing applications to marriage, we're going to look today at three principles that Paul used to help people in the church in Corinth understand how to glorify God in their bodies. And as we go, we'll see his counsel and commands regarding relationships that illustrate and apply these principles. And so we're, we're looking at how you can glorify God in your circumstances, in your body, and here are three principles that teach us how. The first is found in 1 Corinthians, 1, uh, or 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. It says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. When Paul says that he wishes that all people were as he was, he means that he wishes that all people were single that they were unmarried. And we'll see in a moment that the advantages he believes singleness affords to the believer, but we need to beware lest we misunderstand what Paul is getting at. He doesn't say that God wishes this. In fact, he says that each one has his own or her own gift from God. And in this context, he means that some have the gift of marriage and some have the gift of singleness. In our culture, we tend to more or less want people to follow a particular set of actions in life, particularly, I think, in Christian subcultures. You go to school, you graduate, you go to college, you get a job, you get married, you buy a house, you have kids so that your parents can have grandkids, and you raise those kids, those kids have kids so that you can have grandkids, and then you die and go to heaven, right? And that's kind of the cycle of life. That's how it's supposed to happen for everybody. And depending on your ethnic or your religious background, the pressure to conform to that set path of life, um, like one I just described, it can be very, very strong. But the first principle that Paul applies is that God has not called us all to the same thing. And this isn't an excuse to disobey God's clear commands, but within the commands of Jesus, there is great liberty and great variety for the life of faith. And God has not given everyone the same gifts in terms of opportunity or talent or spiritual gifts and not even the same gifts regarding romantic relationships. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 with me. Paul writes this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's quoting something that they had written to him. 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So Paul was responding that, to a question that some people in the church in Corinth had apparently asked him in a letter. There were some in the church who seemed to have thought that it was holier or cleaner or better not to have sex with their spouse, or at least that they would have more time to pray if they didn't engage in sex. And Paul calls baloney on this. It's not inherently more spiritual, to refrain from sex with your spouse than to engage in sex with your spouse. In fact, the opposite is true because marriage is a mutual covenant that is made before God. And if you withhold yourself from your spouse, you're not fulfilling that covenant as it was intended. Now, we can't get into all the details of this this morning, but I want to be clear that Paul isn't talking about individual instances nor about coercion or abuse. He does not give men in this passage a right to say, your body's not your own. That's not what he's talking about at all. And if you've used the passage in that way, then you have misused the passage and you too are guilty of sin. He was not saying that if one spouse isn't in the mood on one particular occasion, that that is somehow sinful. Rather, what he's doing is encouraging mutuality, and discouraging misunderstandings about sexuality. He's saying that you shouldn't think that sexuality is somehow impure between a husband and a wife. And the principle upon which he bases this is that we all have our own gifts from God. How do you know if you have the gift of marriage? Well, we'll talk more about that from the standpoint of someone who is single in a few moments, and, um, and we'll consider that, but let me give you one really good way to know this. You might wanna write this down, get ready, because it's pretty profound. You know you have the gift of marriage because you're married. If you're married, You've got it, congratulations, you've got the gift of marriage. That's right, you've already got that gift. For a spouse to try and, and become more spiritual and, and think that they're pleasing the Lord by withholding something from their spouse or by abstaining from sex doesn't make sense because God intends sex for marriage. A married person could look at a single person and they could wish that they had the kind of freedom that the single person has. They don't have to live by someone else's wishes or their wants or even their demands. There may be fewer time constraints placed upon them. And sometimes a married person could even spiritualize that and wish that you had more time to serve the Lord and you could blame marriage for that inability. Perhaps you even feel that sex is unholy or in some sense dirty, but that would be a misunderstanding of God's word. God has given you a gift, and you shouldn't seek to live according to someone else's gift, but to live according to the gift that God has given to you. 
And this applies to a whole host of other areas in our lives as well. You could look at a missionary, and you could think that if you were going to another country and people were giving money to support you and they were praying for you like they pray for that missionary, then you would really be able to serve the Lord. But you may be neglecting the gift that God has given you to encourage people on your job site or with the nurses that you work with at the hospital, or the people that you work with in the cubicles at the office. Maybe you look at your family and you think that you could really serve the Lord if your kids didn't take up so much of your time. Should you neglect them in order to serve others? No, because in so doing, you'd be neglecting God's gift to you. And the primary application of this section relates to the mutuality of marriage. That's what Paul was applying this principle to in the Corinthians. One spouse should not withhold love, affection, or even sex from the other because they thought it more spiritual to do so, nor should they neglect a spouse and blame uh, ministry for that neglect. But the principle of being content with what God has given to you and living according to the gifts that he has provided rather than being envious of what others have or neglecting what God has given you because you spiritualize what he has given to someone else, that applies broadly and it also leads us to the next principle for glorifying God in your circumstances and in your bodily life. And we could call this second principle uh, that Paul applies the live as you were called or the bloom where you are planted principle. You should live as you were called. Let's read it from verses 17 to 24 of 1 Corinthians 7. It says this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God." And while Paul focuses on questions relating to marriage in this chapter, the fact that he here brings up circumcision and slavery indicate that the principles can apply to a wide variety of circumstances. And the particular situation Paul chose to highlight may not seem like it hits too close to home for us, but these situations do illustrate the strength of Paul's point Circumcision was a matter of religious tradition and was a mark of the Jews' covenant relationship with God. It was commanded by God in the Old Testament, and as a result, when the good news about Jesus began to spread among Gentiles, many wondered if they needed to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Paul dealt with that question in depth in other places, but his answer here indicates that circumcision isn't necessary for salvation. Faith is. And this can be a really difficult uh, thing for us to understand because circumcision is not a matter that we think of often or we tie to religion m for most of us. But for a church at this time that Paul was writing, it was a big deal. 
It was part of the Jewish identity, and Jews considered it necessary to their identity as God's people. So some Jews wanted to continue following, uh, continue uh, recommending circumcision, even following Jesus' death and resurrection, and they taught that it was necessary even for Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. On the other hand, there were Jews living among the Greeks and Romans who were embarrassed by circumcision. Roman gymnasiums were popular at the time, and they were social hotspots where men would collect, and they would hobnob, and they would build social relationships and conduct business. And like those awkward high school locker rooms, there were baths and showers that were shared where nudity was expected, and circumcision was considered abhorrent by some Gentiles. And this created shame for some Jews who were trying to fit into Greek society. So they even developed procedures to try and mask the marks of their own circumcision. But the point that Paul makes here was that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mattered when it came to serving Jesus. Neither had any religious significance. Paul wasn't forbidding circumcision. What one must not do was seek some kind of external change for religious reasons as if the external change makes a difference to God. And ironically, Paul says that what matters for salvation is keeping God's commands. A Jew would have thought that circumcision was God's command. But since Jesus came, God's command is that we repent and believe in Christ and begin to follow him walking in his love. Before we consider the application of this principle to circumstances that may seem closer to home for us, let's think about Paul's second application. He applies the principle of living as you were called to slavery. Now, when we hear about slavery in the New Testament, we need to keep in mind that we are not talking about something uh, that is like slavery in America. We're talking about an institution that was significantly different from slavery in pre-Civil War America. For one thing, slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race. A person from any race could be a slave because they sold themselves into slavery to pay off debt, they were sold as a child, they were captured in a war, or many other reasons. And slavery at the time was a very diverse situation. Some slaves were badly mistreated and they were forced to do things like work in mining operations. Other slaves became highly educated. They could become doctors, tutors. They could earn money to purchase their own freedom. And none of that is intended on my part to be a justification for slavery. And the New Testament promotes the value of people who were slaves and commands that they should be treated well. And I believe the New Testament points us toward the emancipation of slaves. But Paul's concern in these verses is not to convince us that, that slaves should stay slaves. He even says that if they had the opportunity for freedom, they should take it. But not all would be able to get themselves out of that situation. So what should they do? How should they think about their lives and glorifying God? How could Paul tell a slave, glorify God in your body, if they were owned by another human being and didn't always get to exercise their own will? That's the question that Paul is answering. And his answer is that no matter the external circumstance, they were the Lord's freed men or freed women. Circumstances couldn't stop them from serving Jesus where they were. Yes, they might face certain constraints that others would not, but they could glorify God in those circumstances. 
One of our members here at Bethany is a chaplain at the Ludlow Jail. And she relays to me how some of the men to whom she ministers have very little hope of ever getting out of prison. Some of them will be sent to other long-term facilities. And so when a man gives his life to Christ and he is forgiven of his sin, guess what? They don't just let him walk out. They shouldn't, and they don't. And so some of those men begin to wonder what their lives are supposed to be about if they're going to be stuck in jail for the remainder of their lives. And she rightly tells them, you are now a missionary on the inside. What God has done in you, he can do in others, and he has placed you here to tell them about what he can do. And she's not wrong. That's exactly right. And it's what Paul was saying to the men in this circumstance, to to slaves and to those who were circumcised but didn't want to be or weren't circumcised but thought they needed to be so often We think our external circumstances are dictating our lives, and especially we fall into the trap of thinking that our external circumstances dictate our ability to serve Christ and be effective for his kingdom. How many people do you talk to on a regular basis who who imply to you that if some circumstance in their life was just a little bit different, then they would really be happy? How many Christians even have you spoken to who have suggested that if a situation was different, they had a different job, a different schedule, a better boss, more money, a better education, a better church, better worship, better preaching, lack of pain, lack of disease, a better spouse, then they'd really be able to serve the Lord effectively. But Paul says, serve Jesus where you're at. You don't have to change jobs. You don't have to switch careers. You don't need a different family. You don't have to get rid of your spouse in order to effectively serve Jesus. And I don't want to call these things excuses because that could make difficult circumstances seem small. And that's not what Paul is doing. These were really difficult circumstances. But the point is that your circumstances don't dictate your salvation or your ability to serve the Lord as he's called you. So let me show you how Paul then takes this and he applies this principle to marriage. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, and Paul's not saying there that this is a lesser command. He's simply noting that this is not something the historical Jesus said. That's all he's doing. He's still speaking apostolic. This is still the full authority of the scripture. He's just noting that previously this is something quoted from the mouth of Jesus. A husband should not divorce his wife. But he says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
It may have been that some Christians in Corinth thought that it would be better for their service to the Lord if they were single, and so they were considering separation, or what would be called divorce in our context, in order to do that. Or it may just have been that, like many today, some of them thought that their current marriage was holding them back personally, and they'd be better off married to someone else. They became convinced that they couldn't live life and serve God effectively married to their current spouse. They had the greener grass syndrome. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And they thought that life would be better without their spouse. But Paul says that the covenant of marriage should not be dismissed because you think you may be better off or even because you think you might be better able to serve the Lord without your current spouse. And the command that Paul issues comes directly from Jesus. That's why he says uh, that the Lord speaks this, not I. In Luke 16, 18, Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And that's several parallel passages where Jesus says something similar to that. And Paul goes on to say that not only should you not divorce your spouse, but that if you do, you should remain single, or be reunited with your spouse, not seek remarriage with someone else. And there are a number of reasons for this related to God's conception of marriage as a covenant that reflects his own love for the church. And if you're unfamiliar with that idea, I encourage you to look into it in Ephesians chapter five. But the emphasis in this chapter is on the unhealthy, and ungodly idea that changing your marriage status or your life circumstances makes you better able to please God. Because there are two problems with blaming circumstances for your ability to honor the Lord. You overlook the common denominator in all of your circumstances when you do this. And what's that? You. When you blame your circumstances for your inability to serve the Lord, you're overlooking the only thing that's constant no matter where you go, and that is you. Changing your circumstances will not change you. And you might just find out that what needed to be changed wasn't your situation, but that you needed to be changed. You also overlook God's power to work in spite of circumstances. And that's a large part of why Paul tells a believer to remain married, even to an unbelieving spouse, as long as that person is willing. He's not saying that an unbelieving spouse or child is automatically saved because they're married to a believer. What Paul is doing when he says that they're made holy is he's using language and imagery from the Old Testament to describe proximity to God's presence. If something was unholy or unclean in the Old Testament, it had to be put outside the camp so that it would be further removed from the tabernacle where God's presence dwelled. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, because Jesus lives in you and you're holy, that person in your relationship, your spouse or your child, they're not making you unholy as you think they might be. Instead, what's happening is they have an opportunity to be near the presence of God that now dwells in you. And how do you know whether God might not use the presence of the Holy Spirit in you to bring salvation to your children and to your spouse because you choose to remain in a circumstance that you thought might make you unholy, but really God wants to use it to make someone else holy. On the other hand, becoming a Christian does change a lot. Your spouse is sure to notice that difference, and if they no longer want to remain in that relationship, A believer is not responsible for that. You shouldn't feel a burden of guilt. Instead, Paul says, you're free. 
And I take that to mean both that you are free from guilt and though there are a variety of opinions on this, I think that it means that a believer whose unbelieving spouse initiates divorce is free to remarry a Christian if they desire. And my purpose today is not to shame those who have experienced divorce or, or, or anything of that nature. It is simply to preach what the scripture teaches, especially that changing circumstances does not necessarily mean increased ability to honor and serve the Lord. When it comes to marriage, the Bible is clear. It's a sacred covenant, and that should only be, be, be broken under very limited circumstances. But what about other circumstances in life? Paul did mention slaves taking advantage of the opportunity for freedom. Might there not be other circumstances in which change would be desirable? Yes, there are. And Paul does not forbid changes in circumstance, but God also does not want us to miss what is right in front of us while we wait or look for the perfect opportunity. Instead, we should walk confidently in our calling to God's kingdom and minister for him where we're at right now. Might God want to move you in the future? Yeah. Will there be a time when you sense that he wants to change your circumstances after you've sought him in prayer and you've sought godly counsel? Yes. But don't wait to honor him, love him fully, and love those around you until the circumstances are perfect because if you do that, you'll be waiting forever. And in the meantime, what you'll be doing is communicating to all those around you that Jesus' saving power is only effective when the circumstances are right. But listen, Christian, if you'll live for Jesus when the circumstances aren't right, you'll be communicating to people that Jesus' saving power is effective no matter what, no matter where, no matter who you're around, that Jesus is able to save. You'll be saying with the Apostle Paul, his grace is sufficient for me and his power is made perfect in my weakness. For when I am weak, then he is strong. And you'll be communicating to people, God is strong in my weakness. He's strong when my circumstances don't necessarily meet up with what I would prefer or certainly not with what the world thinks is ideal. But yet God is working through me. The first two principles Paul applies to relationships are that you should live according to God's gift and you should live as you were called. And the final principle is that you should live like time is short. It's expressed in verses 29 to 31 where he writes this. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now listen, the Bible is not saying here to abandon your wife or act like you're single, even if you're married. Paul recognizes and affirms the responsibilities that come with marriage. He is making instead a rhetorical point about, and the, and the gist of that point is seen in that last sentence. The present form of this world is passing away. Believers should be living in the knowledge that the way things are now is coming to an end. In fact, that end has already begun. Jesus died, he was raised from the dead, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and that turns the world's purposes and principles upside down. Jesus' rule has already begun in the world, and the world is in rebellion against that. And in many, way, in many ways, believers are free 
to use the world, but we do not sink our hearts and our fortunes and our hopes into it. Our hope rests elsewhere. And this means that when two believers are married, their purposes in marriage will be different than those who enter into a worldly marriage or just married for convenience. Marriage is not the ultimate relationship. It will not last forever. It will last until you die or Jesus returns. Your relationship with the Lord is the ultimate relationship. And so while you hold marriage in high regard, married couples should seek how to honor and serve the Lord together and live for his kingdom purposes together. When we lose someone, we don't mourn like the world. We don't rejoice over the same things the world rejoices over. We do not spend resources in the same manner the world spends resources because we recognize the time is short. Jesus may return at any moment. Our lives and our dealings in this world should always be influenced by the reality that Jesus' kingdom is coming quickly. And Paul applies this broad principle to marriage by asking you to consider what will lead to the best situation for you to serve the Lord while at the same time keeping in mind the first principle, that each of us has a different gift that God has given to us. So I want to read verses 8 to 9, 25 to 28, and 32 to 40 and show you how he applies this principle in marriage. He says this, to the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now concerning the betrothed or those who are engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God." So Paul is answering the question of whether single people should seek to be married or not. Keep in mind that in the background of this is the sexual ethic of the Bible and that Paul has already described this in previous chapters. In other words, he's not saying that there is a choice between marriage and a single life of sexual liberty. The choice is between marriage and celibacy. And we've already seen that Paul prefers singleness 
though he does not command it. In fact, he says that it would be better to marry than to burn with passion. He means that if you don't have the gift of God for singleness, if you cannot exercise self-control, if you're going to be distracted uh, by your God-given sexual desires so that you cannot effectively serve Christ, it would be better for you to get married. But I want you to notice something important that is very distinct from this world. Our culture is so overly sexualized that it's almost inconceivable that someone would remain celibate. Everywhere that a young person turns, you are told that you need to select a label or an identity concerning your sexuality, and then you need to broadcast that label to others in order to validate your own existence. And so peers signal to one another in an attempt to gain legitimacy. Outrage multiplies online when someone is misgendered or mislabeled, and this is just worldly confusion over sexuality. It is a symptom of an anxious age with people needing constant external validation because they have no peace with their creator. Contrast that though with a single person who determines that he or she can live without marriage and decides that that will afford greater opportunity for service to the Lord. She won't have the same time constraints or expectations placed on her as a married woman. He won't have the worries of safety and provision he might otherwise have. This kind of life certainly would be seen as a lacking life in terms of how our world looks at things. And too often, even Christians can look down on single people. But Paul encourages us to think about what will best enable us to serve Christ because the time is short. This isn't all that Paul has to say about marriage. In fact, he extols marriage in other places. In another passage, he tells widows who who were widowed young that they should remarry. But in all of these contexts, the overarching concern is how can I best serve Christ where I am? And for most, that's probably going to mean marriage. But for some, it will be singleness. And that's not a black and white issue, which is why Paul did not give a command, he gave counsel. When he states in verse 25 that he doesn't have a command from the Lord, he simply means that Jesus never spoke and addressed this situation directly as he did the issue of divorce and remarriage. And that doesn't mean that Paul had no authority to speak counsel into these circumstances. He still expects his counsel will carry significant weight because of his call from God. Nevertheless, he's not commanding but giving a principle. It was not a matter of right and wrong. It was a matter of determining God's call and how best to serve the Lord in your circumstances. So here's how we could apply this. For one thing, we should not be immediately suspicious of single people in church culture. We should welcome and encourage them in Christ. We do not necessarily need to encourage them to get married. We need to encourage them to best discern how they can serve the Lord in their circumstances. If that is in marriage, then so be it. We should encourage them in that. But if it is in singleness, then we should affirm and we should strengthen them in that resolve while recognizing the unique challenges that they may face and supporting them as they serve the Lord the way that he has gifted and called them. If you're currently single, you should weigh whether marriage is really what God desires for you. It may very well be that God desires you to be married. It is a pattern that he has established from the beginning, but time is short. If you don't feel compelled toward marriage, 
Don't allow culture to be the deciding factor, whether it's the culture inside or outside the church. You need to determine how has God called you to serve him. You can honor God as a single person. So don't jump into marriage to conform. Rather, seek the Lord for his will and resolve to do what fits your call and best serves God's purposes because the time is short. If you're married, if you're engaged, if you're considering marriage, don't think of marriage as merely a means of self-fulfillment, but as a means of honoring God. Your marriage should not reflect the world, but it should reflect the shortness of time before Christ returns. Your goal as a couple should not be to lay up treasure and pleasure on earth so you can retire comfortably at 55 or something like that. Your goal should be to encourage one another in the gifts and call of God and lay up treasure together in eternity as God has called you to do. And this chapter gives direction for how Christians should think about marriage and it addresses a wide array of marital issues from whether you should get married to sex within marriage to divorce and remarriage, but it's not just a chapter about marriage. Instead, it's an application of how do I glorify God in my circumstances? How do I honor God in my body? And as such, it teaches us principles that apply to marriage, but also that apply to other aspects of our lives. The principles for glorifying God in your circumstances are that you should live according to the gifts that God has given, you should live as you were called, and you should live like time is short, because it is. So let me ask you, are you seeking to glorify God where you are, or are you so distracted by what someone else has or by what the world offers that you're missing what God wants you to be doing in your own circumstances, in your own life, and in your own calling? Do you have the grass is always greener syndrome so that you say, I'll honor God when? I'll serve God when? I'll give when? I'll, I'll serve others when? I'll learn to love when? I'll read my Bible when? Or are you saying, God has put me here He's called me to these circumstances. He's placed me here. And his strength is great in the midst of the weakness of my circumstances. And I want to honor him where he has placed me. Are you holding back from what God wants to do in your life and in your circumstances because you've determined that you can't serve him effectively until he changes something about your circumstance? If that's what's going on in your life, what God may want to change more than anything else is you. He may want to change your heart. He may want to change your ability to trust him and rely on him. He may want to give you greater resolve in that circumstance to show joy, to demonstrate peace, to give love, even though it's not ideal, because think about it. Did Jesus show his love for us through ideal circumstances, or was his love demonstrated to us through circumstances that were far less than ideal? Clearly, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what God wants in our circumstances is not that we would be constantly looking for a way out but we would be constantly looking to provide God a way in to our circumstances, to allow him to work through us in the places where he's planted us 
so that his grace can grow in those lives that are around us and he can be seen clearly to be a God who saves in spite of circumstances. Glorify God where you're at. He'll give you the strength to do it as you submit to him. I wanna ask you if you'd close your eyes for just a moment, perhaps you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. And what I hope that you get out of this morning, if, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you've not ever had a relationship with God through Jesus, if you've not placed your faith and trust in him, is this, that Jesus does not remove us from every circumstance of life. And when somebody tells you that God can save you, like I'm gonna do in just a moment, what I mean is not that God is going to immediately remove every hardship or difficulty or circumstance from your life. What I mean is this, that God's grace, his goodness is sufficient in all of those circumstances. And that the real miracle of our Savior is that he changes us and he forgives us and he gives us grace to know and glorify him in all of life's circumstances and difficult moments so that people will know that God isn't a placebo. He's not a replacement for the things that people so often use to distract them from pain, from drugs or from uh, sexuality or, or from entertainment. He's not a replacement for those things because he's so much greater than those things. He is a savior who loves us and he changes us by his love so that we no longer need those things. Instead, we love him and we need him and we know him. And today, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, the offer of salvation is not an offer of God to remove you from every external circumstance. It's an offer that God would forgive your sin and he would make you new in Jesus where you are. In spite of the fact that you may be at the cause of some of your circumstances. In fact, in spite of the fact that your sin, your rebellion against God and refusal to recognize him has undoubtedly caused pain and troubling circumstances in your life, God wants to forgive you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to renew you in him. And then he wants to show you how to live life that isn't dependent on circumstances, but that depends on faith in Jesus. Because you were not made for circumstances, you were made for God. You were made to know and love Jesus. You were made to walk in relationship with him. And if you don't have that kind of relationship with God through Jesus today, you can have it, not because of anything that I do or anything that I say, but because of what God has done for you through his son Jesus. In spite of the fact that you'd sinned against him and you'd rebelled against him, refusing to even acknowledge that God exists or that he has a way for your life, God made the opportunity for you to be right with him when he sent Jesus to die for your sin. He bore the penalty for your sin when he died on the cross. And because sin was taken care of on the cross, death could not hold Jesus. And on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. And now the scripture says that if we will believe in him, then we will have new life. And it's not the kind of life that the world gives. It's not a life that guarantees freedom from some kind of circumstance only. It is a life in which we are guaranteed freedom from the sin that once enslaved us and freedom to know and love God, to live life as he created it and intended it to be. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus today and you wanna begin that, it's a matter of simply placing your trust in Jesus. It's a matter of surrendering who you are and what you are to him. It's a matter of confessing your sin, 
believing that Jesus died to save you, believing that God raised him from the dead, and then offering your life to him, all that you are, not cleaning yourself up, but allowing Jesus to be the one who makes you clean. So if you don't have that relationship with him today and you'd like to begin that, I'm gonna ask if you would just lift up your hand so that I can pray with you. If you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, you don't have the assurance of your salvation, you don't know that you've been forgiven by his grace and cleansed by the blood of Christ, you've not believed in his resurrection and trusted him for new life, and you wanna begin that new life in Christ today, would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody like that? If you're online and you'd like to respond, you can just text the word HOPE to 413-360-61. We'll respond to you that way and we'll uh, begin that process of, of speaking to you and praying with you. But if you're here in person, you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. I wanna give you just another moment. Is there anyone like that? Just lift up your hand quickly. We're gonna pray. And if you lifted your hand, uh, this prayer won't save you. The words I say don't save you, but I wanna help you express faith or your trust in Jesus this morning. And so if you would, as I pray, just make this prayer your own. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you and I confess my sin. I confess that I've rebelled against you. I've not wanted to live according to your ways and I've refused to acknowledge you in my life. Please forgive me. I pray, Lord, that you would help me from this moment on to honor you. And I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. I believe in him, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. And I no longer want to live life on my own terms. I want to live life according to Jesus. Please help me to walk in him from this day forward. I surrender my heart, my life to you. I give you all that I am, and I today trust Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer or you wish that you would have, there'll be some people at the front of this uh, sanctuary this morning at the end of the service, and I'd invite you to come speak with one of them so that uh, they can pray with you. We've got a small gift we'd like to give you, a book to help you to understand where do I go from here in serving Jesus. For the rest, I wanna ask you this. There might be things in your life where you've been looking at circumstances and saying, I can't serve God effectively because of this. And maybe today you just need to offer that to the Lord. You need to offer that circumstance, that attitude, that situation to him and say, God, I'm gonna serve you in this and in spite of this because I think that your grace is sufficient to work through me and I wanna glorify you where I am, not where I wish that I was. If that's you, I'm gonna pray and as I pray, if you just stand and hold your hands up and just offer that circumstance, that situation to the Lord. And just say, God, here it is. I've been looking at this rather than looking at you. I've been wanting out rather than wanting to let you in. And just give that circumstance to the Lord this morning. If you just lift up your hands as I pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, you see the circumstances of our lives, many of them very difficult. God, many of them frustrating. Many of them, God, distracting. And sometimes we confess that we're tempted to think, if I could just get out of this, then I'd be able to glorify God. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for thinking you so small. Lord, for thinking that you are not able to be glorified in the midst of our circumstances. And we pray that you'd forgive us for being so selfish that we're always looking for a way out instead of inviting you in. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to glorify you where you've called us according to the gifts that you've given us 
and among the people that you placed us. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us not to grow weary in doing what's right, not to grow tired of doing good, but help us, Lord, to persevere in it. And Father, I pray that we would experience in our circumstances the reality that Paul knew when he said, your grace is sufficient for me and his power is made perfect in my weakness. For when I am weak, then he's strong. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to experience your strength in our circumstances, that even though you might not change the circumstance, that you would change us to be able to glorify you in the midst of it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that. And we confess our hope and our joy in you because you are with us. In Jesus' name, we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen.